reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, as much of our Advent stories do. Uh, we're going to be reading about Mary and her response to being told that she will carry the Son of God. So this is from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 55. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Indeed, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has come to the aid of his child Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your presence with us this morning, and we ask that you will send your Holy Spirit to speak to us according to your word, transform our hearts and our lives, give us the gift of faith as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> you know, there are um, special occasions, of course, that call for certain kinds of songs. So you go to a birthday party and you sing happy birthday. You go to a sporting event and you will sing uh, the national anthem. You come to a Christmas Eve service and you will sing Silent Night. Um, uh, I like to sing um, when I'm happy. Um, sometimes I even like to sing when I'm sad. I prefer to sing in my car so that nobody can hear me uh, when I sing. But yesterday there were two songs that I was I was singing. Um, the, the first was uh, Lean on Me by Bill Withers as I was thinking about the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth. And then the other one was um, Inner City Blues by Marvin Gaye. I highly recommend it um, as I was thinking about uh, Mary's song. Music, you know, can express deep feelings and emotions that words alone don't quite have the power to do. Um, there are words in Scripture that challenge us. There are words that teach or inspire or instruct us, call us to praise. 
But there are also songs in the Bible that do all of those same things, but perhaps in a more powerful way. This year we've been exploring the hymns of Advent as we're making our way to Christmas. And, uh, and we began with the prophet Isaiah's song who sang about the people living in a land of deep darkness and on them light has shined. And then we move into the Gospel of Luke. And the first two chapters of Luke, which is essentially like the prelude to the birth of Jesus, the birth narratives. And in those two chapters, there are four songs. Um, four songs. So it, it almost reads like a musical in the first two chapters of Luke. The whole thing is introduced with a series of very um, ordinary, earthy stories, human stories. The first story is about an elderly, childless couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, who we talked about last week, when an angel appeared to Zachariah and told him that his wife will conceive. He could not, he would not believe it, and so God muted him. And, uh, and so he was without speech for the entirety of the pregnancy, and it was given back to him when John was born, and he named him John. So it was almost as though Zechariah had his own kind of pregnancy by which he could think things over for a while. The second story is about a young relative uh, of Elizabeth, Mary of Nazareth. The messenger of God comes to her, just as the messenger of God came to Zechariah, uh, to announce to her that she, uh, not married, will conceive. Unlike Elizabeth, she is a young teenage girl. Her son will be the son of the Most High, God's own son. Mary is perplexed by this announcement because it's going to cause a whole lot of trouble for her. It's a, a moral dilemma, so it seems by the watching world, the neighbors will gossip at this kind of uh, news. And what is she supposed to tell her parents and her fiancé about this conception? So what does she do? She goes and she visits Elizabeth an older relative, probably her aunt, now six months along in her own unlikely and unexpected pregnancy. And by the way, Mary's um, location in Nazareth is about 70 miles from Elizabeth and Zachariah's house in the Judean hill country. So it's not like she just went next door to her aunt's house. She went on a journey to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth Bless her heart, as they say in the South, I'm told. She not only opens her home, but she opens her arms and she opens her heart to this troubled adolescent girl. She thinks that Mary's embarrassing, awkward, and morally questionable condition is just wonderful. This is just great news. And she says so. Blessed are you, Mary. Blessed are you, among women. Elizabeth says this to a frightened, marginalized adolescent. You know, every teenager needs an aunt like that. Um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was a troubled teenager, and I had an aunt like that. 
For almost a year, I could not be trusted to go home to my own house uh, and to be alone in my own house while my parents were at work after school. And so I went to my aunt's house. And every day when I would show up after school at my aunt's house, I could smell the taquitos roasting in the oven for me. She would make me frozen taquitos. And then I would take a nap on the couch. She would give me a blanket. And then she would tutor me in Spanish, regardless of how much of a mess I was and how much trouble I was causing. Everyone, every teenager needs an aunt like Elizabeth. She was my Elizabeth. The third story tells, uh, that Luke tells us to introduce Christmas is the story of Mary's response to all of this. Um, New Testament scholar Beverly Gaventa, she says that after the emotional power of that moment when Mary is told by the angel, the moment she understands the mysterious and frightening thing that's happening to her, and then after the amazing gracious response of her aunt Elizabeth who welcomes and accepts and affirms and blesses her, after all of that, it's time for Mary to say something. It's time for her to respond. Out of the silence, we speak. And when Mary finds her voice, it's quite a statement, quite a speech or song that she gives. We know it as the Magnificat. The ancient church sang the Magnificat regularly. Benedictine monasteries around the world continued to chant the Magnificat every evening. Johann uh, Sebastian Bach set the song to some of the most glorious music ever written. The Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. The mighty one has done great things for me. And then she goes on to list these great things that God has done. Strong things, a list that doesn't usually make it into many Christmas greetings. God has scattered the proud brought down the powerful from their thrones, filled the hungry, and sent the rich away empty. This is one tough cookie, Mary. Mary doesn't pull any punches in this. Hallmark has never come up with a way to use this in a greeting card for Christmas. It sounds an awful lot like um, politics and economics. Preachers get in trouble for talking like this. It sounds like someone's going to upset the dominant political structure and redistribute the wealth. It's not a very good church growth strategy. <laughs> Will Willimon writes this about the Magnificat, this moment in Mary's life. He says, Mary breaks into song, but it's not a lullaby she sings. The little pregnant girl looks out across the Judean hills bathed in winter twilight and sings. She thinks she hears kingdoms fall and the earth rock beneath her feet. She feels the child within her move and she hums a little tune of liberation. The German uh, theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer also noticed the subversive nature of the Magnificat. And so in a sermon that he gave in Germany during Advent in 1933, one year after Hitler became chancellor, just before he declared himself Fuhrer, he said this in his sermon, the Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. 
It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary who we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of many of our Christmas carols. You might have uh, heard that in the 1980s, the nation of Guatemala banned the Magnificat from any public readings. This also took place in India during British occupation. Authorities worried that that this dangerous document could uh, cause the oppressed people to riot. It was a great threat. And Mary can't help but wonder, why in the world was she chosen? Why was she chosen out of all of the women in the world? Why this peasant girl, poor, young, vulnerable, weak? You know, if God were to choose a woman to give birth to his own son, you might think he would choose a strong and yet elegant woman who came from the royal palaces. Unless, of course, unless, of course, this choice of Mary, young, poor, and vulnerable, says something really important about God and who God is and how God works in the world and how God chooses the unlikely and the humble to carry out his plan. God, this young woman is saying, cares deeply and passionately about how people live in the world, the conditions of their lives. This God cares a lot about those who are shut out and marginalized in the world, cares a lot about people in a world of plenty who go hungry, cares a lot about injustice and suffering of humanity. And so the Magnificat is meant to make us, those of us who are intentionally coming to worship the Christ child on Christmas Eve, the Magnificat ought to make us permanently uncomfortable, permanently uncomfortable with the reality of homelessness and poverty and hunger, the reality that millions of our own children in the United States go to bed hungry every night, let alone around the world. As we welcome Christ into our lives, we ought to be uncomfortable about the way the economy exacerbates the gap between the rich and the poor, the way that it seems as though only a few billionaires run the world. Uncomfortable just in light of his mother Mary's confidence that God is gonna fill the poor and the hungry and send the rich away empty. The problem, of course, with this text is that it's been used a lot as ammunition against the rich, a lot of judgment against the rich. But it's a mistake, and I've said this before, to either glamorize the poor or to demonize the rich. Jesus never did that. You know, he did say it will be hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven, speaking of a present reality of, of, of the attachments that we have in our lives. But Jesus also had wealthy friends. He was friends of Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. He was no single issue social reformer, but he did take the side of the underdog. And he did reach out to include the excluded And he did seem to go out of his way to be with the poor and the outcast. But what he wanted and what he wants from every human person 
is a personal spiritual revolution in our hearts, a complete reordering of our values and our commitments. I think what God has in mind is a small revolution in your life and in mine, regardless of how much money we have or don't have, a private liberation movement that detaches us from temporal things and attach in order that we would be attached to an eternal God. You see, in the Bible, the poor, they know that they're poor. In the Bible, the poor know how dependent they are on others, how ultimately vulnerable they and we all are. It's just that they seem to be more aware of it. In the Bible, the poor seem to understand that the only things of real value in this world are gifts. Gifts. Not what we earn or what we have become, but what we're given. The world, beauty, people to love. And the trouble with the mighty in the Bible is that they don't need anything, or at least they don't think they do. Uh, this is why Cornelius Plantiga from Calvin Seminary wrote this. When life is good... When life is good, our prayers for the kingdom get a little faint. We whisper our prayers for the kingdom so that God can't quite hear them. Thy kingdom come, we pray, and hope it won't. When our own kingdom has had a good year, we aren't necessarily looking for God's kingdom. And so Mary's Magnificat is especially relevant for those of us who are not poor. Relevant for those of us who live and move and have our being in American consumer culture where all we've really known is relative abundance, which tells us over and over that our chief end is not to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, as the Catechism says, but to earn, spend, and accumulate. In one of his beautiful essays, Wendell Berry writes this, it is astonishing to see economics elevated to the position of ultimate justifier and explainer of all the affairs of our daily life. All assume, apparently, that we are in the grip of the determination of economic laws that are the laws of the universe. It seems we have been reduced to a state of absolute economics. Barry objects to this. He says, it is the privilege of human beings, it is the privilege of human beings to choose the laws by which they live. It's not determined that the laws of supply and demand and competition are the only choice we have. We can choose to live by the laws of justice and mercy. Comment, comment, commenting on this Magnificat at a personal level, when this sort of finally strikes her. Uh, Kathleen Norris asks, how do I answer when the mystery of God's love breaks through my defensiveness and doubt? Have I been so rich, so stuffed full of myself, my plans, and my possessions that I have in fact denied Christ a rightful place on this earth? You see, the Magnificat teaches us a very simple truth. You cannot receive a gift unless you have a place for it. You can't learn anything if you think you know everything. You can't enjoy beauty unless there's a place in you that yearns for it. You can't receive love unless there's a place in you that is empty and needs love to fill it. You can't be lifted up unless you know that you're poor. 
The reality is, is that every one of us is both rich and poor. If you really want to understand the truth of this paradox, I would encourage you to have a four-part conversation with someone you know really well this week. Here are the four parts. Tell me about the ways in which you think you are rich. Tell me about the ways in which you are poor. Let me tell you about the ways in which I am rich, and let me tell you about the ways in which I am poor. If you have a really good relationship, you can take this even further to say, let me tell you about the ways in which I think you are rich, and let me tell you about the ways in which I think you are poor, and would you tell me about the ways in which you think I am rich, and would you tell me about the ways in which you think I am poor? That's it. Basic questions and see what comes up. You will find it's amazing that we are not all that different at the end of the day. There are areas of poverty and wealth in each of our lives. You see, poverty is a mask that we put on a person to cover up their true riches. And wealth is a disguise we put on a person to hide their deep poverty. Those we call rich are those in whom we choose to see the wealth but are more reluctant to see their poverty. Those we call the poor are those in whom we choose to see the hunger but are slower to see the profound riches. This is why it is so important that we as a congregation are as active as we are in serving the needs of the poor in our local community. And one of those ways that we do that is by hosting the worship service on the first Friday of the month for the Salt Lake Rescue Mission. And I had the privilege of sharing the devotion this month, uh, several weeks ago. And I showed up there and the place was packed with people who were homeless, coming to worship, getting ready to eat. And I could see their poverty, it was all on full display. They could see my riches, sort of, they, that was on display too. And in our time together, uh, they helped me to become aware of my own poverty. And I hope that in a, in a little word, that maybe for a moment they were able to see some of their own riches as beloved children of God. There was one man by the name of Steve who I talked to afterwards. Steve has a, a huge beard, gray beard. And, uh, and I had beard envy, and I said, I really like your beard. And he said, I've, I've had it for over 20 years. And then, um, and you couldn't really see his mouth because it was so big. And then his crystal blue eyes lit up, and the smiles of wrinkles around his eyes smiled for me, and he gave me a big smelly hug and said, I love the Lord. And I could see his riches, and I was sent away empty which is exactly what I needed in order to be filled up. You see, it's good news for the rich to be sent away empty. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones, lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. I think Mary's talking about all of us. God takes the riches in us and sees right through them to our poverty. And God takes the poverty within us and sees right through it to our deep riches. And so as you prepare for this final week of Advent leading up to the birth of Jesus, let uh, Mary teach you to let go a little bit. 
Let her upset your values. Let her start a revolution in your life. Let her scatter the mightiness in your life and lift you up according to your need, your vulnerability, and your dependence on God. Let Mary start a revolution. Let her set you free from the obsession that oppresses most of us to work harder and harder in order to accumulate more and get ahead and consume more. Let Mary lead you away from your identity as a consumer with a net worth. Whatever that net worth is, it doesn't matter. Away from a Christmas defined by how many gifts you have purchased or received to a Christmas that is not defined in economic terms at all, but in terms of love. The love that you're privileged to give and the precious gift of love that others will give to you. Let Mary lead you into a different direction entirely toward a little town, a stable behind a crowded inn, a cow stall, a manger where you will find the light of the world, love unconditional, and the gift of your salvation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.